Hi listeners, it's Carter, here to tell you about an incredible event celebrating the launch of ParCast's first book, Cults. On July 13th, crime junkies Ashley Flowers and ParCast founder Max Cutler are coming together for a night of true crime to remember. And you can be part of it virtually on Spotify Live or in person. The evening will take place in Los Angeles and feature discussions about the book, a live Q&A, and so much more. All ticket sales up to $125,000 will be matched by Max Cutler and donated to Season of Justice, a nonprofit founded by Ashley Flowers that provides financial resources to help solve cold cases and support families impacted by unsolved violent crimes. It's a wonderful cause and an evening perfect for any true crime fan. But time is running out. Register for your spot today at parcast.com slash cults. All attendees will receive a special signed copy of Parcast's new book, Cults. So don't wait. Sign up at parcast.com slash cults. Due to the graphic nature of this cult's actions, listener discretion is advised. This episode includes discussions of child abuse, sexual abuse, child death, violence, and suicide. We advise extreme caution for children under 13. Today, we leave Michigan behind and point our headlights south to the fourth stop on our road trip. It'll take over 16 hours to reach our next destination, but the journey is worth it. Along the way, we'll pass the rolling prairies of Illinois, the lush banks of the Mississippi River, and the rejuvenating hot springs of Arkansas. Any one of them would make an unforgettable stop on an ordinary trip. But our destination lies a little further south, in Waco, Texas. Waiting for us there is one stop that no cult enthusiast would dare miss, the infamous Mount Carmel Center. In February of 1993, an apocalyptic sect known as the Branch Davidians engaged in a deadly firefight with law enforcement at Mount Carmel, inciting the infamous Waco Siege. For the next 51 days, Branch Davidians were locked in a tense standoff with authorities. Eventually, a coalition of nearly 900 FBI agents, National Guardsmen, and police officers assembled outside their compound. But even when around a dozen tanks were deployed against them, they refused to negotiate a full surrender. In their minds, the battle was a foregone conclusion. They'd been assured by their leader, David Koresh, that the siege was the beginning of a holy war and a righteous apocalypse. Hi, I'm Greg Polson. And I'm Vanessa Richardson. And this is a special series presented by Cults, a Spotify original from Parcast. Every Tuesday, we look at a cult's practices, its leader, and its followers. You can find all episodes of Cults and all other Spotify originals from Parcast for free on Spotify. This summer, Cults is hitting the road. We're traveling from coast to coast to investigate the people and places that host the most notorious religious groups in the United States. So put on your shades, roll down the window, and kick up your feet as the rubber meets the road. This week, we're headed to Waco, Texas. There, we'll get to know David Koresh and the infamous Branch Davidians. 
In the early 1980s, Koresh infiltrated the sect and took power for himself. From there, he built a community on lies, abuse, and apocalyptic fear-mongering. He steered the group on a collision course with the U.S. federal government, eventually leading to a national tragedy. We have all that and more coming up. Stay with us. Elevate every morning with Tommy John's Second Skin Underwear. The luxurious support of Second Skin guarantees everything will go smoothly. With over 20 million pairs sold and thousands of five-star reviews, guys love Tommy John. Plus, your most valuable assets are covered with Tommy John's best pair you'll ever wear or its free guarantee. Shop Tommy John's friends and family sale right now and get 25% off site-wide at TommyJohn.com slash Spotify. TommyJohn.com slash Spotify. See site for details. This episode is brought to you by Amazon Prime. You know Amazon Prime is not just a shipping subscription, right? It's got everything, including streaming TV and movies on Prime Video. And of course, Prime's fast, free shipping. Go from watching your favorite shows to getting your favorite things. Whatever you're into, it's on Prime. Visit Amazon.com slash Prime to get more out of whatever you're into. It feels like we're all being told to go on this diet, take that supplement. Ozempic will give you depression, but you know what'll cure that? Weed. Or you could try to balance your hormones. At Science Versus, we're like, what the f*** is going on? Forget the crap online and listen to Science Versus. Just the facts. Oh, and a bunch of stupid jokes. What is a ghost's favorite fruit? Booberries. That's Science VS. New season out on Spotify soon. It doesn't take long to travel through Waco, Texas. Even for a small town, though, there are plenty of densely populated areas, especially near Waco's crown jewel, Baylor University. But once you stray off the beaten path, the urban center evaporates in favor of miles and miles of green and yellow pasture. In the summer, cows crowd under sparse trees to take a break from the unforgiving Texas heat. At first glance, that's about all you'll see on the northeastern outskirts of town. But if you make your way down to Double E Ranch Road, you'll find the new Mount Carmel Center and a unique piece of history. Go through the Iron Gate and up the gravel path until you reach a couple of low stone walls. They serve as a monument to the Seven Shepherds of the Advent Movement. The obscure reference hides the fact that Mount Carmel wasn't always just a church. Nearly 30 years ago, it was the site of one of the bloodiest sieges in FBI history. But to get to that, we'll first have to investigate the man who became the focal point of the siege, David Koresh. Born Vernon Howell in 1959, his life started out a little lonely. In his early years, Koresh struggled to make friends. He was dyslexic and had a hard time in school. As an escape, he often turned to what would become his lifelong love, the Holy Bible. The more he pored over the passages, the more young Koresh felt like he was unlocking the secrets of the universe. By the time he was 18, he'd memorized the entire book. And it's possible that even then, Koresh believed he was destined for something monumental. Journalist Mary Garofolo said that Koresh claimed he was visited by God as a child. The Lord apparently told him he was the chosen one. So, Koresh went looking for a community that would recognize his divine mission. He first came into contact with the Branch Davidians in 1981, when he was hired as a handyman for the compound. 
Though his name would eventually become synonymous with the sect, the church predated him by decades. Founded around 1930, the Davidians were originally an offshoot of radical Seventh-day Adventists. They believed that the second coming of Jesus Christ was imminent and formed a competing church to prepare for the end times. In 1935, about 40 Davidians established a headquarters near Waco, Texas. They called their compound Mount Carmel. In 1955, the founder of the Davidians died. His wife, Florence Hotef, took over from there and almost immediately made an impact. While before the Davidians had believed that Christ might come at any moment, Florence provided some new specifics. She pronounced that the end times would begin on April 22, 1959, which was Passover. For nearly four years, her followers labored in Mount Carmel to prepare for the Lord's arrival. When the appointed day came and went with no holy kingdom, her followers were split. A splinter group called the Branch Davidians took over in Waco, while those who remained loyal to Florence dispersed. And after the failed prophecy, the Branch Davidians slowly rebuilt their following under the leadership of a man named Ben Roden. They housed members at Mount Carmel for decades, relying on the farmland there and strict tithes to subsist. Roden died in 1978, and his wife Lois took over as leader of the church. Like Florence, she quickly made some grand prophecies. In a break from tradition, she claimed the Holy Spirit was feminine by nature. She also believed that her husband's death had finally initiated the apocalypse the sect had been waiting for. Not everyone was so happy about the changes, however. Lois's son, George, felt that he was the rightful leader of the church, and he was never really in the mood to negotiate. He tried to wrest control of Mount Carmel away from his mother by various legal means. The spat only widened the rift between the two. By 1981, it seems like Lois had completely given up on her son. She was actively looking for someone else to succeed her as leader and propagate her vision. Which was just about the time David Koresh took a job as a handyman for the sect. Not only was he a natural when it came to carpentry, a much-needed asset for the commune, but his enthusiasm for scripture was unmatched. And rumor had it that Lois and Koresh connected in other ways, too. Some claim that 21-year-old Koresh embarked on a romantic relationship with 67-year-old Lois. As they got closer, Koresh's influence and stature in the sect grew. Lois officially designated him her successor in 1983. Just a year after that, Koresh married 14-year-old Rachel Jones, the daughter of a well-respected Branch Davidian family. Her parents played a major role in the wedding. Koresh's position was getting stronger, but George Roden never stopped trying to take over Mount Carmel for himself. And in 1985, he finally succeeded, after organizing and winning an election held at the compound. Koresh and a few dozen of his followers were banished from the property. They claimed they were forced out at gunpoint. For the time being, Koresh and his devotees were left out in the cold. But George's control over the Branch Davidians was tenuous, and he was a volatile personality. The feud only escalated when his mother Lois tried to enforce a legal injunction and bar George from Mount Carmel. She died in 1986, but Koresh took up the battle for himself. All the back and forth infuriated George. He was Rodin's son. Now that his mother was gone, he found Koresh's claims to Mount Carmel absurd and intolerable. 
On November 3, 1987, Koresh and his followers got into a shootout with Rodin. In court afterwards, Rodin couldn't stop himself from taking his frustrations out on the judges. At one point, he threatened that God would punish them with plagues of herpes and AIDS for interfering in his church. Unhinged rants like those got him thrown in jail for contempt of court. With George stuck behind bars for six months, Koresh was able to infiltrate the compound and take his place as leader. By that point, it was 1987, and many of those who were loyal to George had either left or changed their minds. Which meant the era of David Koresh had officially arrived. Coming up, Koresh leaves his mark on Mount Carmel. Hi, listeners. It's Carter with some truly exciting news. To commemorate the launch of Colts, ParCast's first book, Crime Junkies Ashley Flowers and ParCast founder Max Cutler are coming together on July 13th for an in-person and virtual experience you do not want to miss. The evening will take place in Los Angeles and feature a live Q&A about the book, an exclusive meet and greet, and a discussion on all things true crime. All ticket sales up to $125,000 will be matched by Max Cutler and donated to Season of Justice, a nonprofit founded by Ashley that provides funding to law enforcement agencies and families to help solve cold cases. It's an amazing organization near and dear to both Ashley and Max, and another great reason to enjoy this wonderful night. And it's just days away, so visit parcast.com slash cults to register today. You can also catch the event virtually on Spotify Live if you are unable to join us in person. All attendees will get a signed copy of the book and a night they'll never forget. July 13th is fast approaching, so be sure to join Ashley Flowers and Max Cutler for a very special evening celebrating the release of ParCast's new book, Cults, all for an incredible cause. Register today at ParCast.com slash cults. Elevate every morning with Tommy John's Second Skin Underwear. The luxurious support of Second Skin guarantees everything will go smoothly. With over 20 million pairs sold and thousands of five-star reviews, guys love Tommy John. Plus, your most valuable assets are covered with Tommy John's best pair you'll ever wear or its free guarantee. Shop Tommy John's friends and family sale right now and get 25% off site-wide at TommyJohn.com slash Spotify. TommyJohn.com slash Spotify. See site for details. Now back to the story. In 1987, David Koresh officially usurped George Roden and took over the Branch Davidian compound of Mount Carmel in Waco. But the place was in pretty poor shape. One of the first things Koresh did was fix up the living conditions and clean up the fields. Of course, the changes didn't happen overnight. The few dozen members who remained at Mount Carmel had to devote most of their time to its upkeep. Women typically cared for the children while the men handled the manual labor. And even after the new construction was finished, they weren't exactly living in the lap of luxury. The compound didn't have much indoor plumbing, central heating, or air conditioning. The main problem was that the group just didn't have enough cash. The only way they survived at all was thanks to Koresh's boundless charisma. His passion for the faith rivaled Lois Roden's. He was determined to do whatever it took to rebuild the Branch Davidians in his image. 
After all, he believed it was his God-given destiny. So Koresh reached out to every Branch Davidian family he could find, soliciting donations. There were other small communities of believers in places like California and Hawaii. Whether it was the endorsement of Lois, the humiliating defeat of George Roden, or just plain charm, Koresh convinced a fair number of families to donate to his cause. One Hawaiian family shelled out $68,000 alone. Koresh used the money to pay off back taxes and finance small businesses around the compound, including a car repair shop and a gun business. At the same time, he ramped up the sect's evangelizing efforts, even sending some members over to Australia to find new converts. And by and large, his efforts were a success. After a few years, there were around 100 followers at Mount Carmel. It would be an exaggeration to say that Koresh's personal charisma drew all those people to Waco but his zeal undoubtedly played a major role in convincing reluctant initiates. Because if there was one thing true of David Koresh, it was this. He loved his Bible. He knew the thing backward and forward and spent long hours reading and interpreting it with his followers. It wasn't unusual for him to lead all-night Bible studies. He came across as an enthusiastic expert teacher. And while that might sound like a bit much to many listeners, Koresh's audience couldn't get enough. He knew how to keep things interesting, and his talent as a preacher kept his congregation coming back night after night. Though, to be fair, they didn't have many other options for entertainment. And to be clear, when Koresh was leading a Bible study, the lessons weren't just about abstract moral principles or stories from a distant past. He and his followers believed they were meant to save humanity. They weren't just memorizing biblical history, they were preparing to play a major role in it. According to Koresh, Jesus Christ died for the sins of humanity, but not all of humanity, as most Christians believed. He argued that everyone born after Christ's crucifixion still needed to be saved. There had to be another Messiah, and God told Koresh he'd been chosen for the role. He told his followers that he was the answer to mankind's prayers. While Jesus was perfect and therefore sinless, Koresh had sinned just like everyone else, and therefore could more accurately judge the rest of the world. That didn't mean he thought he was going to be crucified, though. Instead, his God-given mission was to open the mysterious seven seals, described in the book of Revelation. According to Koresh's interpretation of the Bible, cracking these seals would herald the end of the world and bring salvation to the true believers. The Branch Davidians first and foremost. But saving the world was a big job. It wasn't enough just to open the seals. Koresh also had to ensure the survival of a new humanity, made up only of people who deserved to bask in God's grace. Apparently, the only way to do that was to father this new generation himself. Over time, Koresh started preaching that he was the perfect mate for all the Branch Davidian women. According to one female follower, Koresh claimed he was given inspiration from God to identify women who were worthy to bear his children. And that inspiration first struck in 1987, at least as far as we know. Three years after he married Rachel Jones, 28-year-old Koresh started a sexual relationship with 17-year-old Robin Buns. And it wasn't a secret either. The young woman's parents were appalled by the news at first, but no one was immune to Koresh's charm. He sat the parents down and told them it was a great honor for Robin. Her mother, Janine, said that Koresh, quote, just kept talking to us and he convinced us that this was the way it was supposed to be. 
The couple believed Robin was chosen to have a child for God. By the next year, she and Koresh had a son named Wisdom together. Around this time, on a visit to Australia, Koresh gave Bruce and Lisa Gent the same spiel about their daughter, Nicole. It reportedly took him four days to convince the 19-year-old to be his second spiritual bride. And while he targeted young, unmarried women at first, it wasn't long before he widened his scope. He pressured Robin and Nicole's mothers to have sex with him as well. It took some deliberation, but eventually the women and their husbands agreed to the arrangement. From the outside, it's difficult to understand how Koresh held such sway over his followers. But by that point, many earnestly believed he was the savior of humanity. They had endured hours of sermonizing on the subject, night after night, week after week. They thought Koresh was the chosen one and envisioned themselves as something like the disciples of Christ. Instead of just instilling the fear of God in his followers, Koresh won them over with a glorious fantasy. They, among all the billions of people in the world, were the elect, hand-picked by heaven. Together, they would create a utopia, and their descendants would live on, nourished by God's love. The chosen women would have the honor of bearing Koresh's children. Meanwhile, the men would have to wait until they went to heaven to find their perfect mates. Still, let's not forget that many had already invested everything they had in Koresh, their money, labor, and devotion. The Bunsen gents had already given a permission to procreate with their daughters. If they disobeyed now, they would have to face the fact that they'd been conned. So instead, they chose to believe. But not everyone towed the line. Robin Buns defected after Koresh started bringing other women into his fold. Her mother also left because she never got pregnant with the child of God Koresh had promised her. They weren't the only ones wary of their leader's plans. Some of the other Branch Davidians worried Koresh would target the women in their families next. In 1989, one of Koresh's most ardent followers, Mark Brault, started to believe Koresh was going to claim his wife, Elizabeth Baranyi. Elizabeth told her husband she couldn't go through with it, even if she was ordered to by God. Her words suddenly woke Brault up to Koresh's misdeeds, and the two of them left the compound. But Brault wasn't content to forget about his past. There were dozens of people back at Mount Carmel, who he now believed had been trapped and manipulated by a con man. The guilt ate at him. He took it upon himself to expose Koresh's abuses. Brault rallied a group of defectors who brought several accusations against their former leader to the authorities. First and foremost were his sexual abuses. One former member told an ATF agent that Koresh had exclusive sexual access to women. Robin Bunz went further, claiming Koresh told his followers that he had sexual contact with a 12-year-old girl in the community and that according to his description of the incident, it didn't sound consensual. Other members corroborated her story. Their accounts portray Koresh as a man completely fixated on sex. Brault said Koresh regularly discussed the graphic details of his sexual encounters. According to a report by psychiatrist Bruce Perry, Koresh also put restrictions on how often men in the compound could change the diapers of female children. Supposedly, he believed doing so would discourage impure thoughts among the men. But the accusations weren't limited to sex crimes. Several followers told the authorities that Koresh physically abused even very young children. 
Some former Davidians told the police that in 1986, before Koresh had taken over Mount Carmel, he brutally beat his one-year-old son for crying during Bible study. Two years later, he allegedly whipped an eight-month-old girl for 40 minutes straight. The baby was bleeding by the time he was through. Yet another statement came from a man who visited Mount Carmel in 1990. He witnessed a young boy being viciously hit with a stick for around 15 minutes. These accounts, in addition to others from former followers, are the primary evidence for the claim that Koresh physically abused children. But he was also accused of psychological abuse by putting the kids in unsanitary conditions. The conditions mostly stemmed from the harsh lives the Branch Davidians endured to run a self-sufficient farm on a shoestring budget. Followers made their own clothing and grew most of their own food. Because there was no indoor plumbing, members used buckets and threw the waste out every morning. In addition, all followers, including the children, had strict diets. According to one CPS worker, there were indications that Koresh punished children by restricting their meals. The U.S. Department of Justice stated that Koresh would preach for hours while depriving his listeners of food, sleep, and bathroom breaks. Of course, the only one who was exempt from these rules was Koresh himself. He openly violated the dietary restrictions that every other Branch Davidian had to follow. Eventually, all these accusations reached the FBI. The Bureau was deeply concerned, but didn't have much evidence beyond the testimonies of former followers. They needed an airtight case if they wanted to be sure Koresh's reign of terror would be stopped. However, there was another aspect of the Branch Davidians' activities that really caused the government to identify them as a threat. Their hectic preparations for the coming apocalypse. As time went on, Koresh became more convinced that the end of days was just around the corner. He rationed and stockpiled food, which was one reason for all the strict diets. More importantly, he gathered guns and ammunition. In the early 90s, he built up an intimidating arsenal of assault rifles, pistols, and even machine guns. By early 1992, he had started leading his followers in paramilitary drills and called for reinforcements from Branch Davidians in California and England. He even renamed Mount Carmel Ranch Apocalypse. Authorities worried he was on track to lead an armed insurrection against the government. Still, they were paralyzed until they finally uncovered evidence that confirmed their suspicions about Koresh's illegal weapons. In May, a UPS driver stumbled upon a box of inert grenades bound for the Mount Carmel compound. He reported it to the authorities, and the Bureau of Alcohol, Tobacco, and Firearms got involved. The ATF believed the Branch Davidians had hundreds of weapons, including active grenades. In May, they launched a secret investigation into the sect. By early 1993, they'd obtained a search warrant for Mount Carmel. The agency was set to raid the compound and arrest Koresh for unlawful possession of a destructive device. The problem was in actually serving the warrant. At one point, the ATF discussed targeting Koresh while he was away from the compound. But one source told the agency that Koresh rarely left Mount Carmel. And after two failed attempts to lure him away, the authorities scrapped the plan. In reality, Koresh did leave Mount Carmel, and the agency should have known that. They'd been observing the Branch Davidians for months. Regardless, the ATF decided to serve the warrant in February 1993 at the compound. The stage was officially set for the Mount Carmel raid. 
Coming up, the pressure is on, mistakes pile up, and disaster strikes. This episode is brought to you by Amazon Prime. You know Amazon Prime is not just a shipping subscription, right? It's got everything, including streaming TV and movies on Prime Video. And of course, Prime's fast, free shipping. Go from watching your favorite shows to getting your favorite things. Whatever you're into, it's on Prime. Visit Amazon.com slash Prime to get more out of whatever you're into. Now back to the story. On February 28, 1993... Agents with the U.S. Bureau of Alcohol, Tobacco, and Firearms traveled to the Branch Davidian compound in Waco, Texas. For about a year, they'd been secretly investigating the sect, and this was the day it was all supposed to pay off. But almost immediately, things went wrong. The press headed to Mount Carmel early that morning to cover the operation. Along the way, a camera operator for KWTX asked a passing postal worker for directions and let news of the raid slip. He had no idea that the postal worker was a member of the Branch Davidians. The Branch Davidian immediately sped back to the compound, warning Koresh just 45 minutes before the ATF arrived. Koresh was shocked, but it didn't take him long to spring into action, because this was the moment he'd been waiting for. He'd prophesied that the apocalypse would begin with bloody battle, possibly even with the government. And now, it was coming to pass. In those moments, Koresh must have truly seemed like a prophet to his followers. They were a small group of religious extremists out in rural Texas. No one paid them any mind. Who else could have predicted a massive shootout? To them, Koresh was God's messenger, and it was their duty to protect him. Once the ATF arrived, agents flooded the compound in droves, stuffed into several cattle trailers. But the Branch Davidians were ready. A vicious shootout ensued, resulting in the deaths of several agents and sect members. Afterward, Koresh holed up in Mount Carmel and refused to come out. The Waco siege had officially begun, and the situation quickly spiraled out of control. It was clear that the ATF was out of their depth. That night, the FBI sent over hostage negotiators to try and resolve things peacefully. But that was easier said than done. The Branch Davidians weren't cowed by the army of federal agents outside their doors, even when the ATF brought in armored vehicles and reinforcements. Mount Carmel had enough food and water to last weeks, as well as plenty of weapons and ammunition. Some things were open to negotiation, however. ATF agents prioritized getting the children out of Mount Carmel first. They tried everything they could to make it happen, including sending the cult supplies like milk. One agent managed to convince Koresh to release two children at a time from Mount Carmel in exchange for airtime on a Dallas radio station, where he could share his religious message with the public. By March 5th, eight days into the siege, about half of the children in the compound had been released. Around 25 kids remained. Of those, 12 are believed to have been Koresh's biological children. He absolutely refused to let them leave. In the following days, the FBI ramped up their operation. They repeatedly cut the power to the compound and started blasting loudspeakers late at night to disrupt the Branch Davidian's sleep. Among other things, they played Nancy Sinatra, Tibetan chants, and gruesome audio of rabbits being slaughtered. Which ironically may have played directly into Koresh's hands. Because of his prophecies, the Branch Davidians expected a brutal, apocalyptic battle with the authorities. 
If they'd been treated more cautiously, it's possible Koresh's persecution narrative would have eventually crumbled. At least one negotiator believed these escalations were counterproductive. He said cutting the power was one of the absolutely critical decisions that changed the outcome of the raid. He believed people would have come out otherwise. This assessment was also backed up by one of the Branch Davidians, Steve Schneider. He claimed that before the power went out, there were 20 to 30 Branch Davidians planning to surrender peacefully. Either way, the situation continued to fall apart as days passed. A small group of Branch Davidians did eventually surrender, but there were still plenty of people left in Mount Carmel. By March 23rd, there were around 85 people still inside. By that point, the FBI was losing patience. They worried that Koresh and his die-hard followers would be determined to stick it out until the bitter end. The agency urged the attorney general to allow them to advance on the compound, but was initially denied. Meanwhile, the media was in a frenzy. Some of the brass may have feared that the longer the siege went on, the more incompetent the FBI appeared. At last, on April 17th, after more than seven weeks, the Bureau got what it wanted. Attorney General Janet Reno approved their plan to enter the compound and bring the siege to an end. Two days later, the final raid began. When the sun rose on April 19, 1993, the FBI released tear gas. They also used armored vehicles to punch holes into the walls of Mount Carmel, apparently to help the Branch Davidians escape. Chaos erupted inside as Koresh and his followers attempted to mount a defense. Not that they really stood a chance against tanks and tear gas. As the Branch Davidians started firing at federal agents, the FBI sent in more gas. The fight continued for hours. Then, just after noon, three separate fires broke out inside the compound. To this day, what started the blaze is a subject of debate, though arson experts found that the Branch Davidians were responsible. Listening devices in the compound also recorded Koresh's followers, who seemed to be talking about setting fires. Others, however, advanced the conspiracy theory that the federal government started them, either accidentally or to flush the Branch Davidians out. The flames had disastrous consequences. Fire trucks couldn't get close to Mount Carmel because of the massive police presence, and the inferno blazed out of control. Over 70 Branch Davidians died that day from falling debris, smoke inhalation, and bullet wounds. 33-year-old David Koresh was shot in the head at close range. It's unknown whether the wound was self-inflicted or not. 18 other Branch Davidians died in a similar manner. A toddler was found stabbed in the torso. After the siege, the medical examiners suggested that at least some of these deaths may have been mercy killings. During an interview, one of the examiners, Dr. Rodney Crow, even stated that if he had been trapped in the compound during the fires, he might have done the same to his own child. Things really were that bad. After 51 days, the conditions of Mount Carmel were nearly unlivable. Everyone inside was exhausted, tense, and driven to the breaking point by the siege. Once the fires caught, there was almost no escape. The day ended in tragedy, with Mount Carmel reduced to bloody cinders. In retrospect, it's hard to imagine the outcome being any worse. According to Reverend Dean Kelly, the federal agency's operation had been flawed from the start. He contended that the agency saw Koresh as a con man, plain and simple, and viewed his followers as hostages. 
agents didn't take Koresh's religious doctrine seriously, and as a result, may have unwittingly played right into his hands. At many points during the siege, the government's decisions to escalate their assault appear to have been counterproductive. Instead of weakening Koresh's hold over his devotees as intended, their aggression confirmed his apocalyptic predictions, and that contributed to an unmitigated tragedy. After the fire, nine of the surviving Branch Davidians were convicted, five on voluntary manslaughter and weapons charges, three solely on weapons charges, and one on a lesser charge. They were all sent to prison and have since been released. On the other side, multiple civil suits were brought against the authorities who played a role in the siege. There were rampant accusations of negligence and incompetence. But in 2000, a jury found U.S. officials were not liable for the deaths during the Waco siege. The U.S. Department of Justice filed a report to the Attorney General, which largely blamed Koresh for the debacle. Years earlier, however, in 1993, the Department of the Treasury had issued another report that was more critical of the ATF. With the benefit of hindsight, it seems clear that the agents in charge of the initial raid on Mount Carmel made some critical mistakes. However, the reality of the situation on the ground must be acknowledged as well. Four ATF agents were killed on February 28th when they tried to serve the arrest warrant and at least 20 more were injured. Authorities had to be on their guard after that and many aspects of the resulting siege were unprecedented, so there wasn't always a perfect template to follow. In addition, the longer the standoff continued, the more pressure the government faced from the media, agents on the ground, and the top brass to get things under control. But while the FBI and ATF deserve criticism, David Koresh was not a totally innocent victim. At the end of the day, he was a sexual abuser who commanded dozens of radical followers and the Branch Davidians had been preparing for war for a long time. In the decades since, countless people and institutions have tried to understand what happened at Waco during those terrible weeks. Many have come to the subject with an agenda in mind, looking for someone or something to blame for the tragedy. Even now, there are no definitive answers. But what hasn't been discussed as often is the impact of the siege on the citizens of Waco, Nearly 30 years later, the town still bears the marks of the tragedy. It's not pleasant to be known as the site of a massacre, especially when that seems to be all a town is recognized for. Carl Hoover, an editor at the Waco Tribune Herald, explains that many residents wish they could connect their hometown with more positive stories. For them, it can be frustrating that the Waco tragedy has endured so long in the public consciousness. It's not just the residual baggage from the siege itself but the way the story has been retold by the media over the years, that stings. There have been countless articles, books, a miniseries, and multiple documentaries made about the Branch Davidians. Some of these have been crucial to getting to the bottom of the unanswered questions posed by the botched siege, but others are little more than sensationalized projects seeking to capitalize on events that killed nearly 80 people. Which doesn't sit right with many in Waco. Carl Hoover told the Texas Standard, the typical reaction from locals is one of frustration. He said, a lot of it is just shrugs of resignation. Oh yeah, again, here we go. And others are like, why are they picking on Waco? It's rare for those who actually live there to have a real say in how their town is presented to the world. 
And the specter of the tragedy still looms large, especially since in the aftermath of the siege, David Koresh became a kind of champion to the far-right extremists. He's been mythologized as a hero fighting against government overreach. For these political extremists, the Waco siege was a violation of the First Amendment's protection of freedom of religion, as well as the Second Amendment's right to bear arms. Since the events at Waco, domestic terrorists like Timothy McVeigh, the Oklahoma City bomber, have taken inspiration from Koresh. And figures with similar anti-government sentiment continue to garner attention, like rancher Cliven Bundy in 2014. In a sense, the 1993 tragedy has left behind two distinct legacies in Waco. One of a religious extremist and abuser who drove his followers to ruin and the second of a small community unjustly targeted by the federal government. Only time will tell which message will prevail. Thanks again for tuning in to this special episode of Cults. In next Tuesday's episode, we're headed northwest to the great state of Arizona. Our fourth stop takes us to Colorado City. Amidst the red dirt and tall grass, the Fundamentalist Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, or FLDS, once reigned supreme. You can find all episodes of Cults and all other Spotify originals from ParCast for free on Spotify. For more information about David Koresh and the Waco siege, we found the book Armageddon in Waco, edited by Stuart A. Wright, extremely helpful to our research. We'll see you next time. Cults is a Spotify original from Parcast. It is executive produced by Max and Ron Cutler, sound designed by Michael Langsner, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Nick Johnson, Trent Williamson, and Carly Madden. This episode of Cults was written by Terrell Wells, edited by Abigail Cannon, fact-checked by Claire Cronin, researched by Brian Petrus and Chelsea Wood, and produced by Joshua Kern. Cult stars Greg Polson and Vanessa Richardson. Hi, it's Carter, here to remind you that a very special evening with crime junkies Ashley Flowers and ParCast founder Max Cutler is just days away. It's an event celebrating the release of ParCast's first book, Cults, and you can be a part of it virtually on Spotify Live or in person. The evening will take place in Los Angeles on July 13th and feature discussions about the book, a live Q&A, and more. Plus, all ticket sales up to $125,000 will be matched by Max Cutler and donated to Season of Justice, a nonprofit founded by Ashley Flowers that provides financial resources to help solve cold cases and support families impacted by unsolved violent crimes. This has all the makings of being the true crime event of the year, so don't miss out. Register for your spot today at parcast.com slash cults. All attendees will receive a special signed copy of Parcast's new book, Cults. That's parcast.com slash cults to sign up today. <laughs>